What a beautiful job. What an encouragement to come into the house of the Lord and to be encouraged by young people who are following him in their lives. One of the reasons we love to have Joyful Sound is it is a, a reminder that not everybody in their college years runs from the Lord. And I know our church is filled with young parents. And I don't know about you, but as a parent uh, of a young man who will be a college student next year, if we don't kill him, he'll be a college student next year. And then there are five more following him. It would bring me great joy, and nothing would warm my heart more as a father than to know during his years, as he continues his education and prepares uh, for his gainful employment, which is a requirement, he's got to get a job, that he is walking with the Lord. I often tell young people when I speak at conferences or I have an opportunity to preach at chapel at these campuses or I share with the FCA group of athletes, you make the biggest decisions of your life usually between your 15th and 25th birthday. Those are also the times when sometimes you can make the most foolish decisions of your life. Most people who grow up in and around a church like ours, most people who grow up in an evangelical Christian family make a profession of faith as a child or as a young teenager. If you choose to give your life to Christ, if you trust him, if you respond to his gracious call on your life and you are saved, you are born again, we celebrate that. In fact, our preteens are on a retreat right now. And I understand that last night, one of those young people gave their life to Jesus, and I'm excited about that. Yeah, absolutely, Paul, for that. But once you make that decision, then if you think about it, there are just a handful of other decisions that determine the trajectory of your life. There is nothing more important than trusting Christ. But secondly is choosing the person you'll spend your life with. Statistically, most people will marry. There is, in the Scriptures, clear teaching of the gift of singleness, and people have that. We rejoice in that. But for most of us, we will marry. Choosing that person in the Lord is a huge and important decision. And then the third decision is, Lord, what would you have me do with my life? In other words, I know I need to provide for my family, but what profession would you have me choose in order to bring glory and honor to you? And then, of course, the fourth decision after those three is, where would you have me live my life? And if you think about it, most of those decisions are made by or before your 25th birthday. And yet they set the trajectory for the rest of your life. So it's important, and it will be equally important at the 11 o'clock service in a few moments for these young people to be in front of all of our teenagers, to be an example to them that you can enjoy those years. You can have a ball, and you can follow the Lord Jesus at the same time, and that's an encouragement. And I want you to know, as a church that supports proudly with many other churches in the South Carolina Baptist Convention, we support directly three universities, North Greenville, Charleston Southern, and Anderson University, and I'm grateful for that. A portion of your tithes and offerings leaves our campus, goes to the cooperative program, and a portion of those dollars help those institutions. Most of that money is used in scholarships for young men and women training for ministry. It is an exciting thing. It is a good thing. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 
Whether you're here with us live, you're joining us online, we welcome you into the Word of God as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. I met some first-time guests this morning that's always encouraging to me, and I want you to know if you are a guest of ours, the pattern of our preaching ministry is to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse because our pastor is not equipped to come up with the content that you need to live your life. We believe God's already done it. And therefore, the greatest honor we could bestow upon him during the preaching event would be to let his word speak to us. And that's why we walk through it line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We begun the book of 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, and last week within that book, we started a second series simply entitled The Wisdom of God. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth in the form of a letter. He had great affection and love for the Corinthian believers, but he did not write the letter because he had received good news. In fact, he had received some disturbing news. And at the root of the Corinthian problem was pride. Pride and arrogance were beginning to bubble up. And one of the things in the ancient world, especially in the first century world, a world deeply influenced by Greek and Roman thought, a world that collided in Corinth, was this pursuit of philosophical wisdom. He, with the greatest rhetoric, the greatest speech, the greatest oration, the greatest ability to walk in the philosophical heavenlies of deep human thought. It was he that was elevated. Now, when Paul came to Corinth and began teaching and preaching the gospel, he explained that life is not found inside of an ascent of the human mind. Life is not found in human beings bettering themselves. Life is found at a cross. Life is found with a Savior. Life is found with the one who says, no, 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 your life needs to end and I'll give you a new one. Any man who come after me, Jesus would say, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self and allow me to live through you. Well, the Corinthian believers received this message, and they began to follow the Lord. But after Paul left, those ideas, those philosophical ideas, those ideas that were very man-centered, crept their way back into the teaching of the church, and so the gospel was, begun, was beginning to be diluted, and people were beginning to divide themselves underneath individual human leaders. Who was the best speaker? Who had the deepest thoughts? Who had the wow and the now? So Paul wrote this letter to remind them what real wisdom is. Now, wisdom in and of itself is not the enemy. What did the half-brother of Jesus say? James, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So that infers, it implies. Where's the source? It's from the Lord. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so last week as we begun the last half of chapter 1, and we're going to finish chapter 1 today, we'll see this discussion of wisdom. But what's the relationship between wisdom and conceit, overconfidence? Now, we all know that we want to teach our children to be confident, but we don't want them to be conceited. You ever been around somebody that brags all the time? Anything happens in your life, something better is happening in their life. You know, all of us who are parents are proud of our children, and we share. And I enjoy hearing other parents talk about their children. Sometimes you come across those parents 
who think their children walk on water. And it, it never fails. The parents that I come across who brag as if their children were something miraculous, when I meet the kid, I go, I guess you had to make that up in your mind. <laughs> Poor kid, he can't even, he didn't have a chance. He's been overpromised. You know he's going to under deliver. Now, I believe in optimism and confidence. I like what Zig Ziglar said. He said, if I was going after Moby Dick in a boat, I'd take the tartar sauce with me. I mean, you got to believe in yourself. You got to believe that you can make a difference and you got to believe in what God has called you to do. But there's a difference between believing and bragging. Bragging. Let me show you 10 athletes, just a quick list. Conor McGregor, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Bird, Gary Payton, Philip Rivers, Richard Sherman, Floyd Mayweather Jr., Mike Tyson, Tom Brady, 10 men, 10 phenomenal athletes, many different sports represented here. Why are they on this list? Well, last year, uh, a guy in wolfsports.com wrote an article, the top 10 trash talkers of all time. We know that in professional sports, there is a great deal of trash talking. Now, there's a difference between an athlete being confident in her ability and his abilities and trash talking. Now, some of those were the greatest of all time, and they could back it up. But you and I know we don't coach the greatest of all time. I need to tell you, as we begin another spring of Little League Baseball, your child's not the greatest of all time. I promise you your child's not the greatest of all time. And what we do as parents is we say, look, I want you to believe in your preparation. I want you to work hard. I want you to go out there and give it all you got. But let your play do the talking. Everybody can run their mouth, but you back it up with what you do. And, you know, as adults, whenever I do meet someone who tends to brag on everything in their life, what I quickly realize is that deep down there's somebody in there with some major insecurities and they're trying to cover it and they feel the need to be perceived in a certain way. Now, what happens when that invades our spiritual life? Where is the root of the spiritual person who would feel the need to measure themselves by their performance? their accomplishments, or even by the people they follow or the church they serve. If you're not careful, it can creep in. And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in chapter 1, verses 20, 18, verses 18 through 31. And so I'd like to preach to you a very brief message simply entitled, Before We Boast. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. We'll pick up there. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, verse 28, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that's a reference to God, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God 
God's righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So before we boast, it's important to consider this. For several years, some of you thought we would never get out of the book of Jeremiah. We have not. In fact, I was so excited to get to this passage because do you know who studied the book of Jeremiah before you or I studied the book of Jeremiah for the better part of a decade? Do you know who studied the book of Jeremiah? The Apostle Paul. In fact, I want you to listen to Jeremiah chapter 9. I'll put it on the screen. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Jeremiah goes on to say, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And of course, Jeremiah is speaking in first person like the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In November of 2020, I preached that passage to you in a message called Counterfeit Confidence. And in Counterfeit Confidence, Jeremiah and now Paul points out that we better be careful in drawing confidence for what we think we know or what we think we can do, or what we think we have, or what we think we practice as the children of God. It is a good thing to know what we know. It is a good thing to know what we can do. It is a great thing to recognize and be grateful for what we have and the diligence and the consistency by which we walk. But it is never a good thing for those activities that center around us to become the source of our pride because pride in the human heart is ultimately the root of every other deviation from God's will. This passage almost parallels. In fact, most people believe Paul had this passage in Jeremiah 9 in his mind when he was speaking to these Corinthian believers about this. So before we brag, there are at least three realities we need to consider. We need to think about. When we feel the pull of sinful pride, and I always warn you, don't DQ yourself from a sermon like this. Let me tell you what I mean. You go, you know what, Pastor, you're right. I can't stand people who are bragful and prideful. I'm glad you're preaching this to them. If that's your attitude, you're being prideful. In fact, all of us can be prideful even though we can cloak it in subtlety, even though we can hide it under a veneer that looks humble, every one of us will deal with pride in some way, shape, or form. I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. I don't know how it bubbles up in your heart. I could certainly share with you how I see pride coming on in my heart, but I know this. I don't battle pride once and move on. I deal with it every day, and so do you. And when we begin to deal with pride, it's important to remember these three realities, and I'd like to give them to you from the text. First, Paul would call us to consider the condition of your calling. The first command in verse 26, consider. That's a good word, and let me tell you why it's a good word. Often people think, well, I come to church because at church, the pastor or my small group leader tells me what to do. Well, that's not a bad thing. I was just over in the student center hanging out with the students 
because I knew that worship was being led very well here today and Tripp had the welcome so I could go over and interact with some of those young people. Most of them were asleep. Some of them were buried in their phone. A few of them looked at me in the eye and talked to me and a couple of them I could understand what they articulated. So, you know, we got that going for us. You understand, you know, you drove them here this morning. You, you know, you dumped them off. I know. So, so, so I was over there interacting with them. And, and as I think about young people, I, I think about how much they need to be loved and encouraged. We, we need to take time to let them form, recognize that we're not the Holy Spirit. We, we can't complete everything we think needs to be complete in their life. But there's also a portion of their life where they just have to be told. They need to be directed. They need to be encouraged as to what to do. We should never shy away from grabbing the Bible and saying, this is what God says you should do with your life. I know for me in my life, I imagine where I would be had I not had men and women who spoke truth to me and said, DJ, you should do this, and DJ, you should not do this, and here's why from God's Word. So I'm not in any way pushing away from direct commandments. But not all of the Bible is a direct commandment. In fact, the whole testimony of Scripture is a revelation of who God is. And there are times when God says, stop. Stop doing. And just think for a minute. Take a step back and evaluate. In fact, that's the main verb here. The verb here is not serve, walk, pray, tell, praise. The verb here is consider. Stop for a moment and look at the lot of your life. And consider first the condition of your calling. And, and Paul doesn't do so in a derogatory way, but he points out something to a group of believers that were struggling with arrogance. Look what he says, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. We tend to elevate the geniuses, right? Elon Musk and his electric car, Bezos and his rockets and Elon Musk is trying to fly rockets now as well, and geniuses, people that we look up to, the Bill Gates of the world who have billions and billions of dollars. They're interviewed. They headline conferences. People want to know how they think, and they tend to be elevated in the world. I like to be around smart people. It's not an intimidating thing. One of my favorite Ronald Reagan quotes about leadership is he said, if I'm ever the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. You want to put yourself around people who are gifted and brilliant, and it's an exciting thing to watch what they accomplish. And the world does applaud intelligence, genius. But statistically, I hate to break this to you, most of us are not. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. If you've ever taken any education courses, you understand the bell curve of human intelligence. There's a few on this end that are just brilliant. We enjoy being around them. They process information quickly. They, they read uh, tenaciously. They, they think and reason well, and they're gifted, and whether it be in the arts or the academics, and then there are some who struggle, who, who didn't come into this world with a great deal of cognitive ability for a number of different reasons. But if you map humanity, the vast majority of us aren't over here, and we're not over here. We're right here. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I need to tell you something. You walking around about talking about wisdom and philosophy and going on about who you should fo follow, Apollos or Kephas or Jesus. This is chapter 1, the beginning part, that division. He says, wait a minute, remember something. <laughs> when Christ found you, 
There wasn't anything the world was applauding in your life about your intelligence. He goes on to say, not many of you were wise as the world sees wisdom, but look what he says also. Not many of you were powerful, and then not many of you were of noble birth. Think about what is celebrated today. Those who were genius, those who were strong, whether it be strong on a football field or strong with a microphone in their hand, and those of noble birth. We tend to be fascinated with royalty, with celebrity. The America that I grew up in doesn't have royalty. We rebelled against that and told the Britons to get out of here. But we tend to be fascinated with celebrity. Now there are people who are famous for being famous. They don't have any ability. They don't have any talent. Their personal life is a wreck. But just because the world has determined that they're beautiful and they post lots of data and content about themselves, they become famous for being famous. And this is what Paul says. He's not throwing rocks at a lost world. He's saying, ain't none of y'all. Guess what? Church, in a world that loves extraordinary, when Christ found you, you were ordinary. You were ordinary. And, and, and not to be insensitive, you need to remember that. You need to remember that God didn't pick you because of the brilliance or the genius or the nobility or the strength or the amazing talent that you had. That's not God's plan. So you need to remember where you were. You know, one of the things I've often noticed about the Christians in my life who seem to have the warmest heart for the Lord. Now, we all go through ups and downs. There are times when I feel extremely spiritual, and there are other times when I don't. And there are times when emotionally I, I feel a real connection to what I sense God is doing. And then there are times where I, I don't. And I, I, I'm thankful for the freedom of God's Word that reminds me that my faith is not based on my emotional state. I was praying this morning, well before sunlight, out in the parking lot as I walked in this morning. And I prayed for you and for this opportunity to teach God's word. And my prayer literally was, Lord, regardless of my ability or my mind or my mouth or my emotional state, Lord, the most important thing is not how I feel this morning. It's really not how someone else feels. Sometimes we, we get ourselves in trouble in the American church where it becomes all about feeling. The truth of your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit in human hearts transcends our feelings. But when I meet people who tend to exude a closeness to the Lord, maybe their eyes get misty when they think about Christ quicker than mine. Maybe they smile when they think about going to God's house and worshiping more than I might. When I meet people whose heart is warm, one of the common denominators I've noticed, they never got over the day they got saved. They've never gotten too far removed from the terrible state of lostness they were in when Christ found them. And those are the people that have a magnetic draw. Not because of who they are or how far Christ has brought them. Those are beautiful things. Because they got saved, but they never got over it. I just want you to know there's very little room in your heart for pride if you will take yourself back to that moment and that time and recognize the gravity of your sin and the mercy of God 
that he would love you and cover you and pull you in, fill you with your, his spirit, guide you, be patient with you. Has anybody needed the patience of God in your life? Goodness gracious, where would I be without his patience? And, and he would not only do that upon the day he saved us, but he would do that every day since then. Paul says, when you feel pride creeping in, Stop and consider your condition when Christ saved you. Secondly, consider the criteria of his calling. Those college students reminded me of this process that I'm in. It's a first-time process for me. We're going to visit a few colleges this spring. I called my dad this week. I said, how come you didn't take me to visit any colleges? He said, what did you ever show me, son? That would give me hope to think you needed me to push you academically. Thanks for the honesty, Dad. I appreciate that. A little bit of a late bloomer here. And uh, I'm the kid that Dad set me down and said, Son, your, your girlfriend's dad works for the power company. College isn't for everybody. Get you a job. And now we're seeing this amazing renaissance in the trades and a lot of young men and women are finding their profession well-paying jobs by going into the professions that serve our community, uh, first responders, law enforcement, tradesmen, tradeswomen. And it's a fascinating thing. I have a son who may end up in that way, but we're going to encourage him to continue his education just because it leaves doors open. And so we're in the process of visiting a few schools. And that whole process is about criteria. And if you've been around long enough, you can listen to the spiel about your GPA and your ACT scores and your SAT scores. Let me just tell you something. Them colleges care about the number on the bottom of mama's check. That's what they like. That routing number is real important. They will find a way to get you in. And so whenever we start thinking about those moments in our life when we want to take a step out, there's always the idea, do I meet the criteria? Do I measure up? Can I get accepted into the school? Can I get that new job or that promotion? One of the young men in our church who is uh, working with our students called me this morning and said, I've just received a new opportunity at a new job, and I'm excited about that. And he was wrestling with what he could do to share Christ in a very blue-collar environment that he works in, and he wants to measure up. Now, think about that and read verses 27 and 28 with me silently as I read them aloud. This is what God said through Paul. But God chose, and those words keep getting repeated, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And finally, verse 28, the parallelism God chose what is low and despised in the world, and he even chose things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, if you have your Bible open and you're following along with me, notice the parallelism. Look at verse 26. He says, not many of you were wise. Now look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish. Foolish is opposite of wise. Look back at verse 26. And not many of you were powerful. Now look down at verse 27. God chose what is weak, the opposite of powerful or strong is weak. And of course, look at the last phrase of verse 26. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That means elite, 
connected, significant. And look what he says in verse 28. God chose what is low, not high. There is a three-fold parallel. We see it in Jeremiah. I read it a few minutes ago. We see it here. The foolish, the weak, the low. And yet God does that every time. And this is not new. In fact, you remember what God told Israel when Israel was wrestling with its identity? Like, why did you choose us to be your people? He says in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So this is the pattern. God looks for the underdog. God looks for the last kid picked when they divide up teams for kickball. God looks for the last one you holler in Red Rover. He's looking for that person. Why? Well, Jesus gave an indication. Look at the book of Matthew. At that time, declares the Lord, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. One last reference. Look how James says it. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom. By the way, what's a poor man on earth? He's not an heir. He wouldn't be poor. Heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who loved him. Why? Why is this God's pattern? From time to time, I'll hear somebody say, man, what if somebody famous got saved? Wouldn't that change everything if God would just do a work in this celebrity's life or in this leader's life? There are leaders in our nation and in our country, and that's how I pray for them. The Bible tells me to pray for those who are over me locally, who are over me in our state level, and who are over me nationally. And one of the things I have found, especially of late, when I pray for national leaders, I pray they get saved. I pray for their salvation based on the decisions that I see making. They don't know my Savior. And so I pray for their salvation. I pray for their spiritual life. And I often wonder, what would it be like if someone in a high office or someone with a magnificent following on Instagram got radically saved? You remember when a few summers ago, Kanye supposedly got saved. I can't speak to him. I don't know him personally. But I remember many in the Christian celebrity world ran to interview Kanye because finally we had somebody in the mainstream that was beginning to say things like, somebody is giving this brother some good theology. I actually have a friend of a friend who was connected with a pastor leading a Bible study that he joined. And I know for a fact there was some truth spoken into this gentleman's life. I can't speak to his life. I don't know. I see a lot of things in public, but I recognize what we see in public often is skewed. And I'm not speaking to his soul. I'm not prepared to do that. I'm not his judge. I just remember a lot of Christians getting excited. Oh, my goodness, a celebrity has gotten saved. Here's the problem. The problem is not in praying for leaders and celebrities and sports figures and artists to be saved. That's a good thing. I I want all people to be saved, and I get those cues from my Lord, who says he wishes that all men find eternal life. The problem is the church thinking that's how this works. That's not how this works. In fact, from the very first century, the growth of the gospel was among the poor. It was among the lowly. It was among those who had no political or military power. Now, it doesn't mean that it hasn't penetrated upward. 
It doesn't mean that God is against the wealthy. It certainly doesn't mean that God is against the middle class. And it doesn't mean that God can't use kings and rulers. The Bible's full of godly kings and rulers, men and women who use their influence for his glory. What it means is this. What is the enemy of the gospel? Pride. Where do we get our pride from? When we feel strong, noble, powerful, successful. So the gospel penetrates those quickly who don't have any of that to lean on. In fact, it's a freeing thing to no longer be in charge of your life. And and this is why Paul writes those words in verse 28. He says in verse 28, But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Every dictator who ever thought he could rule the world ends up dying. And most of them die horrific death. Every philosopher that demands that we've ascended beyond the need for God ends up dying. One of the more famous ones in Germany in the 19th century was Nietzsche. He said famously, God is dead. He said this, of course, well before his death in 1900. But Time Magazine in 1966 ran this famous cover, Is God Dead? If you were around in the 60s, you remember that this was a time when everything was being questioned. The sexual revolution and all other revolutions were happening in the 60s. They continue to this day. And this was, of course, the discussion. Is our society really in need of God? He claimed that God is dead. Did you know he was the son of a preacher? There were many ministers in his family. He studied theology. Do you know what turned him off from Christianity? He kept seeing Christians talk about the low and the humble and the suffering and the hurting. And he said, this is a religion for weaklings. Now, I don't know why he never went to the back of the book and saw that we rule and reign with Christ. And saw that the king in and of himself will return. And when he comes back, he will not be the son of peasants headed to a cross. He will be a warrior with a throne to establish on this earth. We see this over and over and over again. And this is why it's important to remember God chooses the low. And that leads to how we'll close. We need to take a step back and think about the consequences of this calling. When we get it, when we recognize that we who know the Lord, know the Lord not by our merit, not by our birth, not by our own accomplishments, but by his grace, and when we recognize he has not chosen us because he expects us in our brilliance and human ability to somehow move the hearts of people, but rather he chooses the weak to display his glory and his grace in us. When we get that, then the consequences begin to fall out. They are given to us in the last three verses of our passage this morning. Look at verse 29. So that, there's the consequence. All this means so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, that's a reference to God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jot these three consequences down. One, first one, boasting's pointless. 
He says it in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You ever seen anybody brag just before they get killed in some contest? You know, someone once told me confidence is that funny feeling you get right before you mess up. You know, if you, if you, if you think about it, when, whenever you find yourself in a position of overconfidence, you tend to quote the famous last two words of a redneck. Watch this. The God of heaven spoke this universe into existence and then <laughs> made your mother sail by sail, made your father sail by sail. Through the divine gift of conception, wove you together in the womb of your mother, all the while holding the planets into place. Allowed you to be born, and before you had conscience to do anything, your body knew to breathe, suckle. Your body knew to grow. Your body knew to eat. You were not in charge cognitively of any of the functions of your body. None of you in this room has had to say, beat, 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 beat. Now, some of you have had to say, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. But you don't have to think, breathe, 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 beat, beat, beat. If you grabbed a few calories this morning, without any of your control, your body is taking that food and turning it into the energy that will be transferred to every cell through your pulmonary system, which is oxygenated by your respiratory system. And then it is circulated by your cardiac system. And all this is happening, and yet you're going to brag in front of God about yourself. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying it doesn't make any sense to boast before the Lord. But, but then, if you want to look for wisdom, remember, Paul's not against wisdom. He says, wisdom is a person. It's not a philosophical ascent. It's not in the center of human rationale. Wisdom is Christ. If you want to know what God thinks, look at his son. This is wisdom and God's choice of us. God chose, God chose, God chose. Three times, twice in verse 27, once in verse 28. God chose, God chose, God chose. His sovereign control of us matches his choice of how to save us. The cross, which the world also says is foolishness. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. Sermon last week, this week. And you and I are folly to those who are perishing. But to God, we are the results of his wisdom. What is his wisdom? A list of ideas, a list of principles, some sort of philosophical ascent? No, it's his person, the Lord Jesus. And what does Christ being the wisdom mean for you and me? I'll give you three words there from the text. Look at them. He says this. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God. And then he drops him, righteousness. Through God's wisdom, you're made right. Sanctification. Through God's wisdom, he's transforming you to be right and setting you apart. And redemption. Through God's wisdom, you are positionally declared to be redeemed, which leads to verse 31. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord last consequence he becomes our pride you know who I'm proud of my savior be proud of him 
Paul keeps going back to this. He says it later in 2 Corinthians. We're not preaching through 2 Corinthians this year. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In a few weeks, we will begin a journey through small group. If you don't have a small group, I hope you'll find one. And we're going to talk about a missional life, what it looks like to share your faith. Did you know that sharing your faith is one of the most intimidating things most Christians acknowledge inside of our faith? Because we know it's biblical, we're supposed to share our faith. In fact, one of the distinctives of our church is our mission. We're here to make the gospel known. Yet statistically, and I don't know if this is true of your life, I'm just going on what the studies show, the vast majority of Christians have never led another person to Christ outside perhaps of their own children. Now, now I understand that you can guilt people, you can lambast them, you can beat them over the head, and they'll do better for a few weeks. But really and truly, I think what I just preached on may be one of the more fascinating ways to overcome your fear. You realize that when we share our faith, it's not telling people what to do with our fingers pointed at them or how to think. It's just letting them know of God's love, his greatness, his rule, his mercy. It's saying, I want you to know what I know about the God who I know so that you can have what I have who is him. Something that comes quite naturally is bragging. Now, most of us grow out of bragging on ourselves because we live with ourselves our entire lives and we realize at some point in adulthood, we ain't all that. But we do love to brag on our children, our grandchildren. We love to talk about our church or our business or someone that we care about who's accomplished something great. And within reason and measure, it is a good thing to celebrate the wins of other people. How often are you celebrating the win of the gospel in your life? Just a simple question to leave you with. Does your life boast about the Lord? What does your life boast for? You ever describe somebody this way? Man, he lives for X, Y, Z. She lives for. Wouldn't it be great if it was said of us? She lives for the Lord. All you have to do is be around her. And it doesn't come across judgmental. It's not condescending. She loves the Lord. And she brags on his goodness often. He at work, when everybody else is going a thousand different directions, or when the conversation is in the gutter, that man, he will say a good word about a good God who saved him. Before you brag, make sure he is the source of your pride. Be proud of him.